Hello, everyone. I don't always think about the food I eat, where it came from, and all of the work behind the scenes. I do know that farmers have a difficult job not only raising animals and tending to the crops, but also in being accountable to consumers. We are faced with many decisions when deciding what food to purchase. There are so many confusing labels, and what do they all mean? Please welcome Ann Malo, who is the Executive Director for Global Animal Partnerships, the leading farm animal welfare standards and labeling organization in North America. She's an animal scientist with a Bachelor of Science degree in agriculture, a Master of Science in poultry behavior and welfare, and has an MBA in agribusiness. Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Hello, Anne, and welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. It's nice to be here. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you get started in this field? Sure. Um, I actually grew up in the city and probably because of one too many James Harriet books, I uh, oh, yeah. decided that I wanted to be a veterinarian. So um, much to, in particular, my father's dismay, I went to agriculture school and the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And honestly, it was the smartest thing I ever did because I absolutely loved it. But I also learned on that journey that I, I didn't want to be a veterinarian, that it's not that I didn't think that was a great job. It's just I wanted to do something that I could really have a different type of impact. There was so much change starting with agriculture when I went to school that I thought it was so exciting that I wanted to be on a, on a different side of it. So it all really started in a class where I had Dr. Ian Duncan and Dr. Tina Wadowski come in and talk about how you can ask an animal and it can tell you how it's doing. So the idea that of behavior and environmental physiology, and I was hooked. So after that class, I went down and asked them if I could volunteer for them and ended up doing that and working for them, um, running experiments in the summer. And because I grew up in the city and had no agricultural background, my entire time at Guelph, I spent working with animals, whether it was in the barns behind the university or any types of jobs or activities that came up where I could volunteer my time. I did that um, just to really try and understand all the different species so that I could decide and have the greatest opportunity when I came out of the university. So I did my undergraduate in animal science, and then I stayed on to do a master of science in poultry behavior and welfare and looked at the importance of rest in young domestic fowl. So at that time, um, we were keeping chickens on very long light when they were very young. And my advisor had thought that this was probably very disruptive to their growth and just overall well-being. And so I looked at that. And since then, there's been a tremendous amount of work done in this area, um, which is it's amazing to kind of be helping to start with that. Then after that, I went and worked down at a at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. My now husband was down there working for a biotech company. I worked for that biotech company as well, running, helping run their farm down there, and then came back because honestly, I was looking for something a little different. 
So worked in something completely non-agricultural. I did sales for a book manufacturing company, got bored and uh, went back and did an MBA in agribusiness. And when I graduated from that, started working again with my old professor. Near the end of 2004, I had a really interesting opportunity um, presented to me. My old advisor was working with Whole Foods Market and he had been asked to be an advisor for a standards committee that they they had set up and couldn't attend a meeting. So at uh, instead, he asked if I could go in his place. So I did. Um, and at that meeting, Whole Foods announced that they were setting up a foundation called the Animal Compassion Foundation that ended up be- actually being the precursor for the GAP program. So while that foundation focused on producer research and education, it was the uh, sort of the framework of the foundation that later became Global Animal Partnership. So I went to work, went down to Texas and worked with the Animal Compassion Foundation and Whole Foods, supporting their standards work with this foundation for a couple of years. And then in 2008, Whole Foods transitioned the Animal Compassion Foundation and their standards for meat outside into an independent organization called GAP or Global Animal Partnership. At that time, I chose to stay on the Whole Foods side because I was given the opportunity to implement the GAP program, um, which was just going to be a fabulous challenge for me. And at that time, there was beef, pork, and chicken standards. So myself and my colleague, Francis Valentine, were charged with bringing all of our beef, pork, and chicken suppliers through the GAP program. So we worked with GAP, the certifiers, and our supplier community to do that. And then around 2014, the leadership of GAP and the existing ED sort of parted company. And we took over sort of as a, we were basically seconded from Whole Foods to help with the organization. And since that time have really been um, running GAP. So our core job was to make GAP self-sustainable. So we were to fundraise, grow the team and put GAP on its path to uh, stand on its own two feet. So Whole Foods pays um, my salary and Francis's salary, but all of the other operating costs and money for the team, that's all either raised by GAP through our revenue streams or through independent donors or grants. And we run the organization that way to date. So that is really interesting. I, that brings up so many questions for me. The very first thing, comment that I wanted to make is when you mentioned James Harriet. <laughs> I have read, going back to the very beginning of the interview, when you mentioned that, I perked up because I remember as as a kid, my mom would always give me the new book. And then I watched, you know, it on TV and I wanted to be a veterinarian too until I really learned more about what is involved in that. But you also said something that's important too, is that there is so much science, and I was fascinated looking at, at Global Animal Partnership's website. There's a lot of science behind what you're doing, and I learned so much just by reading your website and then also finding out how many scientists are behind making decisions for Whole Foods and Gap. Yeah, absolutely. We actually have assembled our farm team, all have graduate level degrees in animal welfare. And so we also have a blending of production experience as well, because really when you're writing standards, it's a blend of the science with what's practically on farm. And that's where I think the GAP program is really a unique program for producers in that it's not a one size fits all. And so we have the ability 
to provide this sort of roadmap for change and continuous improvement in animal agriculture, but be inclusive along the way. So yes, we have a very high bar for our base certification or our you know, the lowest tier in our program, you know, we have to have that as a, as a structure. But from there, we really use the science to provide that roadmap and then work with, especially if we work with farmers around the globe, which we do, we certify farms in 11 different countries now. So in order to do that, having that science-based framework is really important. So besides our team, internal team of scientists, we have a scientific advisory committee that helps us as well with the process. And then outside of that, we go out and use our our existing network to ask for input from other scientists, nutritionists, veterinarians, industry. We really believe very wholeheartedly in a multi-stakeholder and because it really does take a village to set a standard. So backing up just a little bit, could you tell me what the difference is between animal welfare and animal rights? Because you're mentioning you're focused on animal welfare, correct? Correct. And so the easiest way to think about it is with animal welfare, we believe that use of animals is okay as long as you provide for that and those animals' needs and wants, that you make sure that they're well cared for and protected all of the things that are important to them, where with animal rights, they do not believe that animals should be used in any way. Now, there is a spectrum, right? So some people might be vegetarian versus vegan, but ultimately the use of animals is an ethical decision that they make where they really restrict the amount of animals in their their own uh, personal purchasing. So thanks. Thanks for that explanation. When looking at your website, there are different sections depending on whether you're a consumer, whether you're looking for pet food or business. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? One of the things that GAP has done has worked really hard to diversify our partner base. Because, you know, I mentioned earlier that it takes a village to set standards. It's sort of similar making sure that we use as much of the animal as possible. And the reason for that is if a producer is getting their farm certified, there's a cost to not only getting certified, but to meeting standards. And so the more of the animal that they can sell off at a premium, the better it is for them. And so for us, we have worked really, really hard to engage with further processors that might make items like sausages or bacon. And then also the pet food industry, which uses parts of the animal that that humans don't eat typically. And then there's grocery stores and restaurants and You need all of those different industries to help make sure that you're using up as much of the animal as possible. Even now, we're looking at working with companies on leather and wool, again, to try and use up as much of the animal um, under our certification as possible. But along the way, you can't forget about the consumer. So that consumer is a really vital part of making sure that they not only understand what you're trying to do with with the program, but that they feel good about supporting what you're doing. And That's where our label comes in. But the other piece that we also think about is that the people that work for all of those different companies that might be producing GAP certified products, they're consumers as well or buyers. And so we have all these different little audiences that we need to make sure understand our program because being a multi-step program, it can be a little confusing, you know, at first glance. And so we've tried to partition off the program into these different little subsets so that people can 
get in and understand the program more easily. And so by segmenting off our website this way, we really hope to try and make the different steps more easy to understand. The bottom line and even starting gap is really, you know, a lot of us choose to eat meat, you know, as part of our diet. And so there's a lot of ethics behind that and personal preference. So it's the ethical treatment of the animals on the farms and how they're raised, what they're fed. And there's a lot of science that goes into making sure that they are in an environment that, you know, that is, I don't know what the word is to use for that, but safe. And I don't know, what would you say? You could probably describe that. We, uh, we work under three pillars for how we take animal welfare and then we use those three pillars as sort of the backbone for our standard. And those three pillars are acknowledging that the animal has the ability to feel emotions so they can feel pain as well as um, be happy that they play. In addition to that, we take the idea that an animal has to be healthy and productive because they they have to be healthy so that they not only grow properly, but that we are eating healthy food. In addition to that, if an animal is not productive, then farmers don't have anything to sell. Uh, So there is a certain amount of health and productivity that we all have to accept, you know, as part of animal agriculture. And then the other piece of that is what we call sort of the natural living or creating an environment that provides the animals with all of what they want to do. So we sort of look at it as, can we design an environment within our standard that helps support, you know, the health and productivity of the animal, but also provides them with what they need to keep themselves happy? So if we look at the way our standard is tiered for pork and poultry, it's an indoor environment. And as you move up the steps, We move from an indoor environment to a seasonal outdoor environment to a pasture-based environment. For our ruminant species like beef and lamb and bison, the animals always have to be outside. They can be given shelter for weather and whatnot, but they have to be an outdoor-based environment. But within those indoor environments, they have to, you know, have solid floors and bedding and enrichments and natural light and things that help them or ensure as natural, quote unquote, an environment as possible. And those things really impact the quality of their life. If you're raising an animal in an environment that's barren and they don't have anything to do, then they can start to um, bite tails or peck feathers or do things that are abnormal behaviors. So it's really important when we're looking at standards that we're always filtering the standards through those three different pillars with a huge emphasis on the wants and needs of the animal. You know, what comes to mind too is as you're talking about this, I remember reading books by Dr. Temple Grandin when she would go into the different farms and make sure that animals were treated well, but also humanely. And that shed some light on a whole different kind of animal behavior, but also paying attention to the emotional lives of animals. Absolutely. I mean, and the other piece of that, so we have these three pillars, but in addition to that, you have the genetics of the animal become a very significant piece, as well as the management of that animal, how they're handled, 
um, their day-to-day management. You know, we really look at the whole, um, we really look at the system holistically. It's not, it's the animal in the right system managed the right way is another way to think about it. And sometimes there might be other animals like stock horses or herd dogs that also come into play and making sure that they're also not only managed uh, in how they handle the other animals on the farm, but that their level of care is, is also kept up. So you're talking a lot about standards, but how do you follow up? Are there audits? Yes. So one of the other unique things about GAP is that we go to every single farm every 15 months. And some people will say like, oh, well, you're going every 15 months. Why don't you go every year? And the reality is that different seasons bring different challenges to farms. And so by going to the uh, doing the audits every 15 months, then you're seeing the farm during different seasons at each certification cycle. So that over like a five-year period, you would have seen all four seasons. And the audits are actually conducted by third-party accredited certifiers. And so GAP sets the standards, accredits the certifiers, but it's actually the certification bodies that carry out and administer the standard for us. How does the consumer know that the audits are being done? Is there something to look for when they're going to purchase a certain product? Absolutely. They can look for the label. So we've worked really hard to get a label that's consumer friendly, could give that consumer a snapshot that this is what they're looking for. We did a big rebrand in 2019, at the end of 2019, to really try and and make sure there was something easy for the consumer to look for. And so, yes, if, if they look for the label and it's the same label, just with a different colored bar, depending on the step level that the producer has achieved, if they look for that label on pack, then they know that 100% of the life of that animal has been certified. So our program covers the entire life of the animal, including slaughter. And so that label will give them the confidence that that whole system has been checked. So is there a difference in labeling? For instance, organic, farm-raised, natural, humanely raised, is there a difference? Yes, there are so many labels out there. And I feel like every Every time um, you open up the news, there's a new label being... Mm -hmm. It's confusing. It's very confusing. And there's also a variety of different programs. So our focus is animal welfare, but there there is a lot of different labels out there. So I can see where consumers can get easily overwhelmed with the use of terminology and the use of savvy marketing. There is some research that consumers will have to do to know which labels they can trust and which ones maybe they should take another look at. But we feel really confident that our label is definitely one that they can trust with our third-party certification, going to every single farm and having a really comprehensive standard. We feel that consumers can absolutely trust our label. When we look at a label, how do we ensure that it's correct when it says humanely raised? There are labels that say humanely raised. Our humane is one of those words that the animal advocates really don't like the use of. So we went with animal welfare certified because we're an animal welfare labeling program, right? We were a certification program. So we put those together and they compel, we think, you know, the producers to use and consumers to buy without making a claim on whether or not it seems that you end up in arguments with people about what's humane and what isn't. And so we've stuck with using animal welfare instead because we feel like We've defined what we mean by animal welfare. And so we've been able then, for us, we feel that because we've defined it and we have standards, then that transfer to the label is accurate and not misleading. 
what what you were talking before about we really need to do our research in the produce section. It's really hard to even know what is organic and what's not, you know, because there are some fine lines between what's considered organic. Well, I think with organic, for example, uh, again, look for the label and there are rules. I think one of the things for consumers to know is that legitimate third-party programs have rules around what can be said and what can't be said. And there's also a pre-market label approval process. So for GAP, for example, we have a very rigorous program for the use of our label. And within the U.S., you can't actually make any claims on a meat, on meat at all without it being approved by the USDA Food Safety Inspection Service. And the same, the National Organic Program is a it's a regulation, it's a law. And so in order to use the organic seal on a product, you need to have that. Not only do you need to be organically certified, but you need to prove that and get approval. For consumers, I think the one piece for them to educate themselves on is which labels, not only which labels should they be looking for, but understanding that there are those rules in place so that they can trust the seal when they see it. And if they don't see the seal as it was represented, and if they see something that sort of looks like it. So if you see something that claims it's organic, but there's no other proof on the package, then might be a little bit more dubious. You might, you want to do a little bit more research. I think looking for that, that label, as well as the accompanying certifier. So for example, with third-party programs in the U.S., you have to state not only the label, but also the certifier that's doing the certifying. That was one of the requirements for our label. So you'll always see our label with a note about who the certifier was. How do I know where to find your products that you've certified and labeled? Yeah, so our program was started out of Whole Foods Market. They made it an independent organization. And Whole Foods has been a very important anchor partner for the GAP program. But their whole vision was to really impact the lives of as many animals as possible. And Whole Foods wanted to, they put it outside the company because they wanted to grow in other retailers and other food service, for example. And so that's what we've been really focused on doing. And since that time that they put it out and made it its own independent 501c3, we've really grown the program and we there's still always work to do. But right now you can find GAP certified product in over 5,000 different retail outlets, whether that be grocery online or restaurants, pet stores, um, you name it. You can find GAP in over 5,000 places. We certify over 416 million animals annually. And like oh I said, goodness. yes, over uh, and those animals are located in 11 different countries. And so you can find it everywhere. That's pretty amazing how you've expanded. It's amazing to see the growth of the program and just the, there's always room for expansion, further expansion, but just to be able to impact the lives of that many animals is, is really, and the producers that raise them is really, really rewarding. So how has COVID affected what you're doing? Yes, COVID has really, um, really, really been an interesting journey for us. And so one of the things that we've been doing ahead of COVID hitting, so I feel like we were uniquely positioned to manage COVID, is that we've been looking at ways that we could integrate technology into our process for a whole host of reasons, whether that be making things uh, more efficient, but also there is a number of different diseases related to animals. This is the first time we'd ever worried about the humans. So it introduced us to a few things we hadn't thought about, but between avian influenza and African swine fever, to just name a, a few, 
there has, you know, there are risks and challenges with disease on a regular basis. And so we've been looking at ways that technology might be able to help us maintain authenticity and that transparency that our partners and our consumers have come to expect, provide us with the, you know, with a way to do that, that didn't create more risk. So when COVID hit, so we moved to remote auditing within the very first week that all of the COVID, you know, remote work from home, cessation of travel, all of that. We worked to transition to remote auditing with our certifier partners. And those certifier partners use a variety of different ways to conduct remote audits. We have a large variation of not only size farms in our system, but also um, ability and accessibility. So we work with some Mennonite and Amish farmers that are unable to use Zoom and uh, those types of platforms. Um, But we also have some farms that are in remote areas of, you know, the country where they may not be able to have the bandwidth in order to support WhatsApp or FaceTime or some of those services. And so the, I really have to give credit to our certifier partners that have deployed a wide variety of ways of assessing remote auditing, but we were able to maintain, do those remote audits and maintain certification for those farms so that they could maintain their market access and keep their customers really happy because it wasn't just toilet toilet paper that was flying off the shelves. Um, (laughs) Meat and meat products were also flying off the shelves at the same time. And so the other sort of challenge that COVID presented was everything that was going on with the processing plants. You know, processing plants typically have people in very close proximity to one another. And so I think that whole social distancing and six feet became quite a challenge as, as we've seen. And so we had processing plants that had outbreaks. Well, animals don't just stop for that. They keep growing. And so we had to work really hard to help support our farms as they move to different processing plants so that they could process animals or they might have to wait a week or two because the processing plant may have reduced capacity. And so there was a lot of conversation with our different partners to really support them in trying to make sure that they kept product flowing. Because as I said, it wasn't just animals that are growing, it's new animals Mm -hmm. coming along the way that we had to Mm -hmm. space for. The third issue that we had to deal with with COVID were work crews. So often, say on a ranch, a ranch would bring in other family members or people from neighboring ranches to process calves. And what I mean by process is vaccinations, castration, tagging, those sorts of things. But because of COVID and people, you know, needing to stay home and and not do those things, then that meant that instead of maybe doing that over a weekend and having people come over and help, that the ranch had to do that themselves. And it might take a little bit longer because they would have to, they were still doing all the other things that they needed to do. So by not having the same accessibility to people, we needed to work with those ranches to make sure that they didn't lose their certification because they needed to do things. It might take them a little bit longer to do some of those procedures. And so really we were throwing all sorts of things that we hadn't really thought about because we'd always focused on 
animal problems, right? So disease outbreaks, but it's really worried about not having people there. So one of the, the big learnings for us, and of course, for our partners, is that in our emergency planning, that now we've, as we revise standards and create new standards, because we have a couple of new standards coming out, that we are including a, a people element to emergency planning. And, it, you know, it's, it's always hard to know what that's going to look like. But I think just the ability to sort of think about what happens if I don't have my entire, you know, staff or I can't call on my neighbors to come help me do something, how would I manage? Uh, so it's really getting people to think about that and as part of their planning process is how we're, we're trying to work through that, as well as asking our partners to think about considering having a backup facility. You know, I think some people would tell you it's hard enough to find primary spots for processing animals, but really thinking about if I had to, where would I, where could a secondary place that I might be able to go to? Again, sometimes planning is is what, you know, helps reduce stress and, and keep you moving through. But overall, I, I think we, we handled the whole situation really, really well. And we were able to, you know, keep the program running and support all of, all of our partners in that process. And it's still going. Well, it's totally amazing how all of us have had to pivot due to COVID. Absolutely. And it's caused you, I mean, there's been so many negatives about the pandemic. I don't even want to downplay the negatives, but on the positive, trying to get a positive spin on it, it's forced us to realize, first of all, that we're adaptable, we're resilient, and we can come up with different measures to just continue on and actually develop better processes than we had before. I uh, totally agree. And I think it's also really shone a big light into our, you know, food supply chains and people are taking a really big look at where their food comes from and how they can support their local communities and their local farmers. And it's really making them sort of evaluate where they buy their food from. You know, there's been this huge resurgence in cooking. And um, I, I think that's a really, really positive outcome. So yes, I do think there's a if there can be a little silver lining coming out of, of the last year and, and a bit, I think that's it. That I think it's, it's been a really positive thing for the farmers and producers once we've got past sort of the, how do we navigate all of the challenges put in front of us? Well, I've heard more and more people say that this has given them a chance to actually decide to cook new recipes, learn how to cook, yeah. uh, taking online cooking classes. And I've noticed that you have blog articles and recipes on your site. If people are interested in absolutely yes, and um, you know it's it's one of the things that whether we're good at it or not, we all love to try and we all love to eat. Would like to experiment, and one of the things that we try to do for our readers is to not only bring them sort of tried and true recipes, but also give them a few things to experiment with. It's one of our. It's really really popular, and it's a great way to interact and learn more about our partners along the way. So do you anticipate any changes in the future? And if so, what would you like to see happen? This is going to come at you probably a little bit from left field, but one of the things that I would love to see in the future is programs like ours working with other programs. We all, not you know, as a, as a nonprofit, I think resources are always tight. And rather than sort of competing for the same retail label space, maybe we can work together and work on our strengths. So we're an animal welfare program. Uh, that's our focus. So maybe we can work with the organic industry. Maybe we can work with the regenerative agriculture industry. Maybe there's other industries where they can focus on the piece of 
you know, the, I guess the consumer pie that they're really good at, we can focus on ours, but we come together and work together more on it so that instead of competing for space, uh, you know, on a, on a label, we're working together and helping to drive the bar forward. You know, I feel like sometimes when all these new labels and programs come out, there's a lot of singular focus or people try to add more attributes to a program that really aren't their core strength. And so rather than improving things, it actually uh, lowers the bar rather than raises the bar. And so I think if we could work together more collaboratively, then I, I think we could do a whole lot more for animals. And I've seen a lot of collaboration happening in over a year now mm-hmm. where we used to like be in our own silos. Yes. Yeah, I think we're really, mm-hmm. really poised for that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, Anne, is there anything else that you'd like to share? One of the things that I love to do is to get out and talk to our farmers and hear, you know, things that they like and and their sort of hopes and dreams. And as a consumer as well, any opportunity that your listeners have to talk to a farmer, and if they want to talk to any of ours, you know, please let me know. But we're so disengaged from how our food is raised. Just, you know, then the world moves so fast that if you're looking for something to do on an afternoon, I'd say go see if you can go look at a farm or tour a farm or talk to a farmer, because I think people, it will give people just a totally different perspective. You know, one of the things when I travel, I've been to a wide variety of countries around the world, but I spend most of my time in the countryside. And it's obviously right, looking at farms, touring farms and it's really a fabulous way to to see a country and there's just some really fabulous people that you can meet along the way. And so if your listeners have an opportunity to talk to a farmer, whether they're doing a demo, you know, in a store mm-hmm. or they're touring around and going to farmer's markets, ask them. They're so intelligent and they have so much to offer. So I'd say talk to a farmer it's, it's, would be my, and, and look for the gap label. What a great suggestion. I just love going to farms and you know we used to live in Pennsylvania Dutch uh, oh, territory right. and so lived around Lancaster Pennsylvania and it was just beautiful farmland yeah, and it, is. it was just so peaceful I totally agree and there's just some you, you see the world in a through a totally different lens so I, I joke sometimes that I've been to all these major cities and I've actually never seen the major city I've seen always you know the rural community and and honestly I, I would <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way I took my mother with me to Scandinavia um, this is many years ago but we went touring farms throughout Scandinavia and one night we slept in a 12th century grain bin and literally like we mm. uh, we climbed this little wee grain that we kind of this little wee ladder into the grain bin and there was just mm-hmm. heads and a window in the room. <laughs> it was perfect. And I joked with my mother that she'd never have this experience on a Globus tour. And she like still to this day talks about talking to all the farmers and seeing what they do and just it being so, like you said, so peaceful and uh, just really uh, uh, one of those sort of life-changing experiences. And they work so hard. Yeah, at um, all hours. To make sure that we get the thing. food. Yes. Absolutely. All hours. So I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast to go to Global Animal Partnerships website because there's so much. I learned quite a bit just going to the website and, and seeing what you're doing. And and if anybody needs to contact you, what is your best? Is there an email or do you want to share your website information? If they go to globalanimalpartnership.org, 
There they can find us um, through that website. There's a phone number, there's email, but you can also find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So you can direct message us. Any of those, that's six ways I think you can you can find us. So please, happy to talk with you. And on your website, you have a list of different businesses that they can go to where, you know, I definitely went to the pet foods that have your labels. Yeah, absolutely. And we can help with that if they have questions. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Anne. I really appreciate you taking time out. And I've learned so much from this discussion. Oh, thank you, Allison. I really enjoyed it myself. Take care. Thank you. During this interview, I learned quite a bit about animal welfare, sustainability, and the science behind decisions made when raising animals for food. There are many ethical decisions behind making the choices of what kinds of food to eat, and lots of emotions attached to these preferences. In talking with Ann Mallow of Global Animal Partnership, we discussed how their company partners with farmers and other businesses. When partnering with farmers, the goal is to make sure animals are treated humanely, raised in a natural environment, and decisions that impact the life of animals and quality of food that becomes a part of diets for ourselves as well as our pets. I have a lot to be thankful for and appreciate the hard work of everyone who's behind the scenes paying attention to these ethical considerations, sustainability, and health of everyone involved. If you would like to listen to my other podcast episodes, please go to my website at ouranimalconnection.com, and you can also follow the show anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Be safe, and stay tuned to another episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Podcast.